It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm too hot. I can't cope. And I, I, I know that you love the hot weather. You're such a sun worshipper. But with, with my pale, freckly complexion, I don't do well. We're recording this on Friday when it's 30 degrees. It's going to break, isn't it? Is it going to break? Please tell me it's going to break. I know. It's sort of like, it's not, it's sort of don't get what you wish for. Isn't that right? One of Sarah's friends said a good way of keeping cool is if, if you're a T-shirt wearer, soak the T-shirt in cold water ring it out and then put it back on again and, and just let it dry naturally and that'll cool you down. Isn't that a bit sort of clingy? Yeah, but you've got the physique for it, maybe not me. Oh, that's, <laughs> I wish that were true. I wish that were true. I've got something to ask you. It's the thing that I'm dying to ask you. How did the test drive go? Oh, interesting. I haven't talked to you since the test drive. No, because I wanted to call you the day of and then I've been, I've had the urge to call you every day since, but I thought I'm going to save it for the podcast because I want to hear it at the same time as the reason to be cheerful Uh, listeners. Um, how was the test drive? Well, it feels more stable than a bicycle, at least for me. Uh, I tested two different tricycles, but both of them had sort of quite large I mean, I could definitely be selling the sort of make-your-own-sandwich equipment. In the, you know, they, they had large sort of, what do you call it, at the front, you know, box. or One was for a child and one was for a, I don't know, equipment. Oh, I, I didn't realise that you had a sort of built-in compartment on the front of these things. Yeah, that, well, that, the, the place we were testing it didn't have the one without all of those things. Did you go out on the open road? Oh, definitely not. No, no, it was around a little area where the bike shop was, but sort of in a cul-de-sac type of place. So how are you feeling? What happens next? You made it any closer to a decision? Uh, Yeah, so I'd say the ball has moved forward. I've gone from very sceptical to mildly sceptical to mildly positive, I'd say. This is great news. And and I did send you the eBay link for that Sinclair C5. Are you, you completely off that idea now? Now, why did I go off the Sinclair C5? Because it's 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. This week, we're talking about supporting the arts through the coronavirus recession and recovery. Clearly, every sector has been deeply affected by the lockdown, but social distancing is going to hit the arts hard for a long time to come. Up to 400,000 jobs are thought to be at risk across the sector, with theatres and live performances particularly badly hit. 
Even with this new social distancing measure, cities can only fill around 40% of their seats, far below what is needed to break even. Without government support, it's feared that a 1,000 British theatres could permanently close. We're going to be talking to playwright James Graham about why our theatres are so important and how we can support them through this crisis. You'll also know we love talking about FDR's New Deal, and yet another remarkable part of it was a number of big arts and culture programmes, and we've brought back our resident FDR expert David Walner to talk about that. And we're also going to be exploring how Germany has supported its culture sector. We're talking to Berlin-based arts journalist Kate Brown about what the German government has done. And then for a cheerful person this week, I'm really excited to talk to Lem Sisse, who I remember going and seeing in Manchester in the early 90s. There was kind of quite a lot of crossover between the the stand-up poetry and the stand-up comedy back then and used to be able to go and see both in one night and he's had an incredible career uh he published a fantastic memoir called my name is why last year and we're going to be chatting to him a little later what's uh, what's your reason to be cheerful well you know i sort of feel slightly like during lockdown i should have developed a hobby learned to play a musical instrument you know learned a foreign language i've done none of those things however what do you feel about kale I'm, I'm a fan. I mean, it's, uh, I feel like I'm very much adhering to uh, a certain stereotype of people who live around where I live. But I, I love me some kale, yeah. So i am sort of been trying to... I, I don't know why, but I got kind of into kale. But anyway, I've, made, I make, I've worked out how to make a very nice kale pasta sauce. And it's, gonna, it's shortly receiving its second outing. Oh, so what's in it then? Kale. Yeah. That's sort of it, really. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly simple. I mean... You know, maybe I would sort of branch out to a pine nut or two, but I haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> I've actually made the kale in advance. But the other thing about kale is that when it gets in your fridge and you open the packet, it then it, man- it sort of seems to kind of spread its wings and just sort of disappear it kind of all around the you know, crevices. So I-, I got some sort of nasty kind of tellings off about the kind of, you know, kale sort of territorial ambition. So I just made it in advance. <laughs> I've frozen the kale sauce so it's all ready to go nice maybe you could pop some round on your tricycle maybe i could sort of you think i might be able to market it ed's kale i Uh, think it's more marketable than make your own sandwiches really um what's your reason to be cheerful eugene won a competition wow at the beginning of lockdown we he had some like comic or something and there was a competition in it and we sent off a postcard expecting nothing to come of it and you know 12 weeks passed or whatever it was and this huge box turned up for him and he won all these toys from a magazine you serious yes i'm gonna get him to pick my lottery numbers for me tonight i thought nobody ever won things that's what i thought too i used when i was a kid i was always entering competitions on swap shop and definitely and you never won anything either not even a blue peter badge you're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to one of the strongest voices uh, in the, the crisis in the theatre sector, playwright and screenwriter James Graham. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Also, somebody who's synonymous with lockdown. It feels like a long, long time ago, but Quiz, uh, which you wrote... Uh was brilliant and also i think one of the sort of cultural events that brought everybody together early on in 
in lockdown. Oh, thank you. That does feel like a long time ago, doesn't it? It's um, yeah. I mean, that was that was such a privilege to be able to. Um, obviously, we couldn't ima- have imagined for a second the condition in which we would be broadcasting that show and and having literally a captive audience to um, to gather around and, and watch it. But it just accident- accidentally became this really joyfully meta thing in that it was about old fashioned event linear television where families were forced with three channels to watch the same thing at the same time in the same room um and it was just it was just really joyous against the bleak backdrop of of quarantine to um yeah to be able to share something which became that kind of that kind of thing again and i i did text you james to say how brilliant it was um uh, and I asked you whether you thought they'd done it, and you refused to tell me. <laughs> um, and I still refuse, but good try. And I also just don't think. I mean, the, like the truth is, I don't know. I, I think only three people in the world know if they did it, and that's that's the people accused of it. Well, let, let's let's get on to theatre then. And you know, obviously, it's a sector you know incredibly well. And for people who haven't read the the articles you've written, can you explain for us the scale of the crisis? facing British theatres at the moment is is quite shocking. It it unfortunately is um, the biggest threat to to a 400 year old industry that that it's ever been. And it's, and it's immediate and it's, it's huge. Um, It's not a huge reason to be cheerful. I'm afraid every sector has suffered obviously under coronavirus. Um, So theatre isn't special, but it is, it will be the most disproportionately affected. These buildings will be the very last to reopen which means bluntly you have zero income during quarantine. And then if we follow the government guidelines for social distancing, every time you raise the curtain under social distancing, it costs more money than you earn in in theatre tickets because your audience capacity is probably less than 25%. So we're looking at eight, nine, 10 months where either we don't earn any money or we lose money by trying to work. And it's just unsustainable and it's devastating. And and typically for for, a theatre to break even you you have to be at 40% capacity. Oh, God, no, 80% pretty much. I mean, it depends on your model. It depends on, you know, musicals are very expensive compared to one-man shows. So it does depend, but I would say it's closer to between 60 and 80% full before you even start making your money back. And that's, of course, because I believe, and I'm sure you agree, um, it's not just a commercial endeavour. It's also meant to be a social good for people's local communities. And if you have ticket prices that are punitively high, then only very rich people in your community can go and see the theatre. So you have to keep the ticket prices down, which means you need to be basically be full for it to work. Something Ed and I were talking about before we started recording was just, just the size of the British theatre industry and, and, and the, the creative, industry, creative industries more generally. If you were talking about the automotive industry or, or, or some other, something that wouldn't come under culture, maybe it would be treated more seriously because, you know, there, there are great benefits to, to a society through arts and, and culture. But just if you were to put a monetary amount on it, it's a big industry. It's huge. And I think you're right. But I've thought a lot about what it is that feels so um, queasy um, about talking about arts funding in particular. And I think we probably all know what those answers are. I think that there's a certain extent to which it's about class or perceptions of class. People think of going to the theatre or going to a symphony as being um, metropolitan, elite, liberal activity. I know that's not true. I'm from a working class background in, in Mansfield. My first engagement with theatre was a pantomime um, which is raucous and silly and joyful and 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 ev- all families go to see those um 
And you're right. I think we also think of it as a bit of a luxury sideline. Uh, but, but, but what, what's extraordinary is that, yes, we have more people working in our sector than they do the, the car manufacturers or, or, or fishing. It's over 300,000 people. Um, and there are 1,100 theatres across the country. This is, this, this is like a huge, huge sector. But we know you're right. There's an economic argument that, that says we contribute way more than we, than we receive in public investment for every one quid you get five quid back if you're the government. So we've invented over many, many decades of investment, this beautiful box where the government puts a quid in and gets five quid back. And not only that, we get to be world leaders in what I think is this really beautiful thing about sharing stories and making sense of the world through characterization and through humor and through poetry and through action and through singing. I just, you know, I just love it. And if it, if it makes sense on a financial level and makes sense on a, an emotional spiritual level for your nation and the soul of the country that you live in, then it's a no-brainer. The only reason why you would let it die is ideological. And what sort of stories are you hearing from theatres that you, you've worked with over the years? How much of an existential threat are they facing? I think it's gone, it's gone on waves. So the first, I think the, it, the first feeling was of absolute shock, probably like every sector, whether you're a restaurant or a bar, um, it was the immediacy in which it happened. People were on their way to their theatre in the West End or in Nottingham that night to perform on stage and, and were turned back and went home. And those theatres have been dark ever since. So there's a, there's a psychological trauma to that. The idea that all of these beautiful buildings across the world are completely dark and completely silent. There's the human impact on that, on these 300,000 workers. I've got lots of friends who are actors, musicians, technicians, lighting designers who who are just sat at home feeling incredibly frustrated, the power that working gives them. Um, and then, then there's just the, yeah, there's the, there's the practical devastation of theatres this week having to start make, make redundancies across, across the scale. So at the moment we're talking, uh, Plymouth Theatre Royal, somewhere I've worked was a training ground for me before I went all glossy in television. Uh, they had to make 100 of their artistic team, uh, redundant this week and those people aren't coming back that theatre is now not going to be able to operate at any point in the future in the way it used to for, for local people. So what does the government need to do then in terms of in investment and what indication have you had that the government may do? They have been engaged. They're talking to us and I'm grateful for that. I think the Treasury understand that, that if you can't open safely, we're going to need some shortfall funding. Um, I think it's how you distribute that, the scale of it, um, uh, so, but those, those conversations are happening. It's just, I don't think they're happening quick enough. And, um, we need to, we need to know. Otherwise, it's going to keep, you know, your local theatre. But the, the, basically, the, the statistics are that, uh, 70% of all British theatres will be closed and boarded up by Christmas if we don't receive help within the next two weeks. Really, really sensible grown up people I've spoken to and respected. Um, you speak to them on the phone and, you know, you hear the wobble in their voice. This is incredibly, um, yeah, it's just very upsetting. It's just, and it doesn't need to happen. It doesn't need to happen. And what would you like the money to do, James? Just give us a sense. Is it about subsidising theatres to open at well under capacity? What, what are you looking for? It's a really good question. And I think, I think ultimately it's about being able to make the work. Um, we don't want, nobody wants money to be paid to not work and stay at home. This is about um, capitalising companies that have been depleted of their reserves and being able to pay um, these very skilled, passionate people across the country to return to work and make plays and musicals and dramas 
to an audience that is under capacity. It's about facilitating that. So yeah, just work, just help, just help us to work. And then slowly over the course of six, seven, eight months, as audiences are allowed to return more fuller, then we can be all guns blazing. And then I think it's really incumbent upon us to ask questions about what wasn't working about theatre. Let's not pretend it was perfect. If we are going to rebuild in the coming months, we have to ask serious questions about how we can be greater forces for good in our community and how we can open our doors wider for people who don't normally get to come and see shows and plays. Are you implying that this crisis and the struggle to get support has re- has revealed something in that respect, or are you just saying more, more generally? I think it's revealed, certainly in terms of um, the people who work in it, it's revealed towards how vulnerable we are. And I think it's exposed the fact that the majority of people, 250,000 people roughly in this sector, are freelance or self-employed and don't have the structures in place to protect them when your industry closes for nearly a year. But I, 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 and then I think moreover, it's about um, to be, to try and be optimistic and say, well, if, if we're building from the ground up, what can we change and why shouldn't we? And it's, um, I believe in the, I've been thinking a lot, probably like you, Ed, um, about the post-war settlement and building and, 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 you know, uh, arts and culture were absolutely written into the DNA of that post-war rebuilding that created the, the confident and optimistic uh, boom of the 50s and the 60s in terms of music and drama and British films, working class British films and British talent. Um, I've been reading a lot of Tony Crossland and the future of socialism and and just his manifesto being people's lives cannot just be pensions and exports. It's got to be, he used the word, word happiness a lot, which I just love. There's no reason why government policy can't include the concept of happiness and what that can do to people's spirit, especially in, uh, you know, in the not exactly... Um, unified times we've been living through. And you've put your finger on something very important, haven't you, which is that it's very important that any um, investment in theatre doesn't just sort of save the jobs or help the people who are employed, but helps those who are self-employed as well. Without a doubt. And when you look across at the rest of Europe, places like France and Germany... Do you think so far we've been behind? What are the reasons for that? Do you you look enviously at, you know, Berlin or what's happening in France? Yeah, of course I do. The fact that Germany, who are, without being national stereotypes, are economists at heart and know what is good for their economy, threw a billion quid immediately at the arts in a mixture of grants and loans because they see the value in it. Sometimes it's really hard to make the argument. These aren't popular arguments to make. They are difficult but they understand the social and economic argument of, of culture. And we claim, and rightly so, we, we, we should be really proud of this. I'm really proud of this. And I think actually most people are proud of our culture, of our films and our TV dramas and our plays. You know what? I was really um, surprised. And I, I know this would be easy for me to exaggerate, but in my nervousness of, I don't know, going on question time or tweeting about theatres closing, I just accepted that there would be a, tr- a trolley backlash of people going, why are you talking about theatres, nurses and care workers is the only thing we should be talking about. And, you know, I have th- sympathy with that view. I couldn't believe the level of positivity that people, especially when we, we had a, uh, a social media effort to talk about Plymouth in particular this week and James Corden got involved and lots of people got involved, Gary Lineker, and I thought it would be a pretty toxic uh, cesspool of responses. I was so moved by how many people were upset at the idea of a theatre closing. Isn't there something quite interesting about that? Which is, I think, it, and I actually think that is stri- struck me about the response to the creative industries during this crisis, 
which is that actually if it's about place and people's local community, I mean, this isn't to disparage our London institutions, but if it's about, you know, the local theatre in the place where people live, it has a completely different effect than if it's about it does, yeah. You know, yeah. national institutions. Yes, I think it's the image of your local, your town centre having this glorious building with plasterboard over the windows. And I think that's horrifying to a lot of people. And also, you know, if we are to take this government's um, strategy and passion for a, a levelling up and an infrastructure revolution, then I think we should think about about that. I mean, we, you know, Ed, I'm sure you could speak about Doncaster more fluently than I could, but I come from a, um, a world, Mansfield, Kirkby Nashfield. These high streets, these places, we talk about lockdown in London and oh, when can we get back and being physically somewhere like a restaurant or a bar? Some of these towns have been in lockdown for decades. The collapse of social infrastructure over 10, 15 years, in a lot of these towns, there is no place to literally go. The leisure centre's gone and the library has gone and the post office is gone. Even the frigging pubs, if pubs can't survive, when we open the doors, where are we asking people to gather and go and be a part of a community? And I think theatres can absolutely be those civic hearts of a city and a town. If we survive this, after I've finished, finished bursting into tears, uh, I will go back to my local theatre in Nottingham where I'm an associate artist, the Nottingham Playhouse, and just have the biggest, boldest, radical discussions about how that building can be not just a place where at 7.30 at night you get a glass of wine and you go into a dark space and watch a story, but how the foyers and the bars and the, the meeting rooms can be a cultural hub for people to get together when so much of that has disappeared from people's lives. We, we've not uh, we've not talked about the Jeffocracy for a while, our utopia, imagined utopia on this podcast. If, if we put you in charge of rebuilding culture you know in in the wake of the crisis what is the first thing you would do on day one? Oh well the first thing when we've spoken about this a few years ago on your podcast the term the first thing i would do is put art back into schools state and comprehensive schools because it's disappeared since the development of the eback and i don't think um culture should ever just be something that runs adjacent to our lives it should be embedded in the heart of it in our education in our in our town planning um, so start there and, and generate a whole new generation of uh, enthusiastic artists and audience goers and make them give them the empowerment to make culture a celebrated part of British life. James, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck with your very, very important campaign. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. So on this podcast, we love talking about Franklin Roosevelt uh, and we love talking to David Woolner, who's professor of history at Marist College in New York, uh, resident historian at the Roosevelt Institute and author of The Last Hundred Days, FDR, A War and Peace. And I feel like he is becoming our resident historian. Uh, David, thank you is so much FDR for joining us. FDR correspondent. He's our FDR correspondent. David, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, so we talked um, about President Roosevelt's New Deal on the podcast recently with you, um, but we didn't so much dwell, we talked about the environmental part, but we didn't really talk about the arts programmes that were part of the New Deal. Tell us a little bit about what kinds of arts and culture were supported. Well, the New Deal supported uh, quite a host, uh, quite a variety of, of arts programmes. You had uh, support for the visual arts, for the fine arts, uh, federal music project, uh, federal theatre project, uh, support for the um, photographers through the Farm Security Administration who were sent out to record uh, conditions in America in the 1930s. Um, 
federal music project, uh, which was quite extensive, um, not as well known. Um, so really, they, the whole gamut, the whole uh, scope of the arts, again, these were used to promote the ideas uh, of behind the New Deal, the philosophy behind the New Deal. Um, but they also were great works of art. And I think I'm right in saying that they were collectively called Federal One and un- established under the broader Works Progress Administration, supporting a d- very different, diverse range of arts projects. I mean, the, the obvious question is, what what inspired that program? I mean, what 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 was the what was the sort of political coalition constituency that made that happen? It's interesting. It's a it's a very interesting question. Actually, it begins before uh, Federal One. Federal One was the program run under the auspices of the Works Progress Administration, which is more commonly known as the WPA. Um, but you know, in the spring of 1933, uh, as Roosevelt's New Deal was up and running, and as 100 Days was up and running, and they were trying to deal with this great crisis, there was real deep concern about what was going to happen that winter. Um, and they had a number of federal projects up and running, emergency legislation up and running. But Roosevelt felt that he had to expand the employment opportunities. And as those ideas were floating around, Roosevelt received a letter in May of 1933 from an old colleague of his old schoolmate, actually, by the name of George Biddle, who was an artist and had been greatly impressed by the muralists, the Mexican muralists of the 1920s. Um, um, and knew Diego Rivera and so forth. And he wrote a letter to Roosevelt saying, you know, artists need employment too. Um, and wouldn't it be a wonderful idea to perhaps hire artists to paint murals that would espouse uh, the same sort of ideas and philosophy behind the New Deal? And Roosevelt was very receptive to the idea. He knew, he, he, he immediately recognized there might be criticism of it. But um, it gained traction. Eleanor Roosevelt was a big supporter, and by December of '33, they decided to go ahead with it. Am I right in thinking that uh, many famous artists were supported by the WPA, including Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Dorothea Lange? Absolutely, Jack Levine, Dorothea West, uh, many, many, many artists uh, became household names. When you read the memoirs of these artists, you know, they, they were destitute, they were desperate, and uh, they were paid hourly wages. And they felt uh, incredibly grateful to, to be employed and, and valued. They, they felt that someone had valued their work. And you said, interestingly, that you, he knew, Roosevelt, that there would be criticism. Is that because it was seen then as a, as a sort of elitist? They anticipated that it would be, the reaction would be, these are make-work projects. Um, and I don't think Roosevelt ever saw them at all as make-work projects, and certainly the people involved in, in running these programs did not see them as make-work projects. Um, so he, he was sensitive to that idea. There really was quite a bit of uh, leeway in terms of the art that was produced, but they did emphasize that they wanted to promote uh, you know, an American form of art, uh, what was often referred to as the American scene, which you get this sort of realism, this American realism, which is quite, quite attractive, I think. It comes out of this period. Let me just sort of ask, in a way, a sort of slightly devil's advocate question: Was some of it propaganda? Was it was there freedom of expression? How, how would you describe the way the, the 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 content? There was a great deal of artistic license that was taken. There there was an expressed desire for art that that portrayed uh, the American scene, American life. Uh, and there was a tendency towards uh, what we think of as sort of American realism in the, in the, the, the art, much of the art. 
But there were also things produced like the famous films that Per Lorenz produced, The Plow That Broke the Plains and The River. And these, you know, these were beautifully done. Uh, they were extraordinary films. But they also kind of were, you, you could say that they also were kind of propaganda, propaganda films in the sense that, for example, The Plow That Broke the Plains was really promoting the idea of soil conservation. Uh, of course, let's not forget, this is the era of the Dust Bowl and the, the sort of t- tremendous apocalyptic scenes that were depicted in the films of, of what was happening. So um, in that sense, yes, they were tools of communication. Um, maybe propaganda is too strong a word, but they were tools of communication that in some ways almost mirrored the fireside chats where Roosevelt would sit down and try to explain to the American people in a way that they understood what the government was trying to do. And how on board were the general public or even how aware of it were they as, as this being uh, part of a wider New Deal? Well, you know, I think, um, I think they were quite aware. There were over 250,000 music concerts uh, produced. Uh, 33 uh, community orchestras were, were uh, put together. Hundreds of community arts centers. I mean, they, you know, people... Had, hadn't had access to art or art instruction. You know, it was much more than just artists painting pictures. Um, you were hiring actors uh, to produce plays. They went into, com- you know, community theaters where across the country, thousands and thousands of performances of everything from Gilbert and Sullivan to Shakespeare. But it, it really touched a nerve uh, across the country. As I said, um, in Harlem, for example, the Community Arts Center became incredibly important, a place where people for the first time were exposed to the arts, could hear music, could go to lectures, uh, and get art instruction. You know, it produced a tremendous amount of material, uh, over 2,500 murals, 17,000 pieces of sculpture, 108,000 paintings, thousands of of designs. It it is much more than that sort of initial impression that we get that, you know, a bunch of uh, unemployed artists needed something to do, and, and the government decided to hire them. It was far deeper than that. What do you think the legacy of the Federal Arts Project is, both on you know, th- that generation of creators and, and how creativity is, is thought about in American culture, but, but, but also on, on audiences and communities? Yeah, I, I think the legacy was, was tremendous. Um, you know, from a historical perspective, um, this, the body of work that was produced was quite important. But I also think in terms of exposing uh, the American people to art, uh, it had a tremendous impact. And and what was driving this was this idea that the New Dealers had that art shouldn't belong just to the wealthy elite, that art belonged to the people. And Roosevelt went even further. He felt that art enriched life and that the production of art was a sign of a healthy democracy. Uh, He said at the opening of the uh, new building for the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, the conditions for democracy and art are one and the same. What we call liberty in politics results in freedom for the arts. We've heard, heard calls for similar programs today. What do you think we can learn from the New Deal about supporting the culture sec- sector as we recover from coronavirus crisis? I, I think we can learn a lot. Uh, the arts can provide solace, inspiration, uh, hope for the future, and a shared sacrifice and belonging in in the community when we're going through this crisis. So I think the arts can do a great deal. They can can help people, um, bring people together 
in a moment of crisis like this, uh, as I think they very much did during the New Deal. Well, David Woolner, it's always an incredible pleasure and an incredible education to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, we're going to go to Berlin now, where we're going to talk to Kate Brown, who is European editor of Artnet News. Kate, hello. How's Berlin today? Uh, it's good. A little bit stormy, but we're cozy inside. Now, um, Germany seems that, that they were very quick off the mark to help out the arts and culture sector uh, during the current crisis. Do you, do you want to talk to us about how they've supported freelancers and helped artists and art workers during the lockdown? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, the crisis uh, started off here very much like everywhere else. Um, suddenly the b- pandemic was declared. There was a lockdown. Everyone panicked. People got furloughed. Um, their pa- politicians ran into emergency meetings to try to figure out what to do. And um, and then I think everything took a very different course than a lot of other countries, especially in Europe. Um the German government basically decided that in order to, you know, prevent a rent strike and a complete collapse of like the uh, independent uh, business economy, that they would uh, issue $50 billion to small businesses. And I think what was really crucial about this 50 billion that really, you know, made all these headlines was that it incorporated um, freelancers into the um, into the economic package. And, you know, the past 10 years, we've seen especially in the creative uh, industry, um, you know, employee-based jobs turning into gig jobs and gig work. And especially for artists, they're often working on freelance contracts. Um, A lot of gallery jobs and museum jobs are also on on freelance contracts. So this incorporation of um, freelancers into the economic relief package was huge. So yeah, people were cautiously optimistic about um, what the application process would entail, um, especially artists and creatives, you know, like how would you, was it merit-based? Would you have to prove that you were an artist of a certain stock or that you had a business that was successful? Um, And what became apparent was that all you needed was your name, your tax info, your address. um, And within days, 5,000 euros was wired into every single person that I checked in with who had applied. Um, It was wired into every single bank account with very little questions asked it became kind of a model of how to how to bail people out of a really bad situation really quickly and was there a sense that the government uh, you know was, was was thinking about the arts and culture sector specifically or was it sort of just a catch-all thing which was all small businesses and freelancers uh, no, they were definitely thinking about the arts and culture sector specifically. Um, and of course, in Berlin, um, there's such a huge population of artists here. And it's also really important to the economic draw, just the sort of the cultural vibe of the city, which, you know, bleeds into the club scene and into the, you know, the East Side Gallery where the Berlin Wall is. All of this stuff is, you know, made for and by um, the art art industry. So I think that they were acutely aware that they needed to keep this industry afloat and not let it um, collapse. And, and what about the latest bailouts? What support has been included for the arts sector in those bailouts? In June, there was an, the government, the federal government announced another billion for its new start program. So they're going to hand out 250 million to cultural institutions because 
um, it's very expensive to uh, reopen museums with these new uh, socially distanced um, practices in place, right? You need to buy better ventilation systems. You need to have uh, more guards. Of course, there's less um, people coming to the museum, so ticket sales are down. Um, so that was what that money was for. And then they earmarked another $30 million for galleries and cultural centers and the publishing industry. So, yeah, there was another big handout that was just issued in June um, to get everything going again, just as everything was reopening on at the end of May. So I'm interested to know about Germany more generally and, and what the tradition there is of government support for, for the arts. Is, is that a sort of a big part of society and, and you know, government is, is strong on, on funding and support for arts and creative sectors? Definitely. There's a lot of money that is earmarked for culture. And, you know, I think that that is because um, of the political strife that Germany has gone through um, in the past hundred years. I mean, it recovered from uh, World War II and the damages that it, that it wrought um, on, on Europe uh, with, with um, some specific measures for culture. And of course, after the Berlin Wall came down in the late 80s, um, the, the sort of cultural um, input that came to, to Berlin really was also championed by the government um, to kind of revive the capital city again after, after so much division. So I think that they're, they're very aware of how important it is for keeping the country um, as sort of unified um, and also how it plays onto the, world's, um, onto the world's stage. So it's important for its soft power and how it's seen in the world. And I think that they know that in order to, for that to be achieved, they need to spend money on it. And, and what's the reaction been like in the arts and culture world? Are arts organisations asking for, for more from the government? Has, has, have the measures been well received? I think people are, are very satisfied. Um, of course, you know, this is also not, um, this is a country that also expected support because it's very much ingrained in the, in the society here. Like it's a, it's a welfare state. The taxes are high. Um, there's a very strong understanding of like the importance of art. Like they have, um, for example, the artist's social insurance. There's a special social insurance and healthcare system that is just for artists. So, the expectation that the government would help was like very high. And I think that people will expect them to continue to help. So people are satisfied for the moment, but um, they weren't maybe uh, su surprised in, in a sense, you know? So Kate, finally, what do you think we can learn from the German response to this crisis? I think that um, you can't expect not to bail out individuals and have your economy restart. You know, this has been a very unique situation because the lockdown has affected um, so many, uh, so so many of the little people and so many small businesses. And there are also people who are are, are able to go spend money and go back out and um, use their capital again. So. If you, if you sort of leave them high and dry, um, you're really stealing from the future when you expect your economy to like restart down the road. And I think that that's like really something that the German government was acutely aware of from the beginning and it made a big difference, or hopefully it will. That was great, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So what did you think? Well, we sort of touched on it with James in that, you know, the, the, the theatre and the arts benefit society in ways that are almost in, impossible to calculate. But if you just wanted to look at it, 
in terms of the economy it's it's something in which we're a world leader and it's baffling to me that certainly so far the the government haven't looked at it like that um although again talking to james there's there's perhaps signs that that might be about to change light on the the horizon yeah Uh, um i mean i I sort of think it is interesting you know my reflection is that i do think the mood has changed on this that i think it isn't seen as in the same way it might have been 10 or 15 years ago subsidizing elite tastes that i think there is this real sense of place regional theater I think all that is quite important. I think people have a local affinity with their local venues, not just theatre, by the way. It's it's so interesting as well, isn't it, hearing how different countries view and value culture. And it's, it's odd because I, I do think that it's, it's something like what you're talking about, uh, be it either a, a sort of local level with a sense of place or this sense of us being world leaders. We have that. In this country, we we definitely have it here. I just wonder if the government has been a bit slow to to cut on to that. And as we're learning, FDR might not have all the answers, but he certainly had plenty of them. I tell you what, I could listen to David Warner all day. Oh, I know, it's brilliant. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. For cheerful people this week, we are going to speak to poet, author, and I would say knocking up against national treasure at this stage of your uh, your career, Lem Sissy. Hello, hello. When you say knocking up to national treasure, you mean like putting my hand up and going, "Can I come in?" <laughs> so tell us what what's lockdown looked like for you then, Lem. I'm, I'm up one day, down the next, crazy one day, sane the next. I live alone. Uh, I like that. Um, but it's, uh, you're pretty much faced with yourself, really. Even Zoom meetings, you know, you just look at yourself, don't you? You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? The, the, the one time when you're sick of yourself in lockdown, you know, you spend your time looking at yourself when you're talking to people. Have you been keeping yourself occupied then? I'm judging the Booker Prize at the moment, which is uh, the world's best uh, book club. And... <laughs> Uh, I'm reading a book day and night. There's not a second that I'm either thinking about a book or reading it. So how many books are you reading over what period? Give us the full, give us the full lowdown. Uh, 151 books um, over about 160 days, something like that, 160 I mean, days. that's fine if you've got not, nothing else to do, isn't it? But you obviously have got other things to do. I'm, I'm really happy about lockdown because it means that I can give my full attention to the incredible fiction that is written by some of the best writers. You must be having mad dreams. I'm in a blurs, a word blizzard. That's what it's like, a word blizzard. But what a gift, you know, what a, 
what a privilege and what an honour. And it's, it's incumbent on every one of us as judges to give our best, to get over whatever your insecurities are and give everything to, to the reading process and to the discussion process. I'm learning so much from the others. It's, it's incredible. I want to talk to you about your, your memoir, which is uh, it's coming out in paperback in, um, in, a, in a minute. But before that, at the beginning of the episode, I was saying to Ed that I used to come and see you back home in Manchester in the early 90s. And you, you would be, uh, you'd get bills where it was you and uh, Carolina Hearn and Frank Sidebottom and Henry Normal, who went on to, you know, create John Thompson, who went on to create so much good comedy, Johnny Dangerously, who, who went on to be a band called I, I Am Clute. Um, it was this, this weird time where um, sort of poetry, comedy, and to some extent music were all, converging like what what was what was it that led to that sort of odd scene in manchester at that time well well it's really funny isn't it because the madchester thing happened mid to late 80s and i think it, it had something to do with that uh independent spirit i guess um uh, of Manchester, but it was also to do with the fact Manchester had has always had it. Well, it had had in my lifetime a kind of spirit about it where the comedians were together with the folk singers, were together with the with the mime artist, whatever you know. They, they would all perform together. Um, I, to be honest, I always felt like the the, the 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 outsider, you know. But then. We all did, and that's that's the that's the great thing about looking back, isn't it? You can see, you can go, oh, we all felt like we were outsiders. So the, the memoir is "My Name Is Why." It, it follows your experience of growing up in the care system in Wigan. Um, can you, for people who maybe uh, haven't uh, read anything about your story, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, my mum came to this country in the sixties. She gave birth. She was put in a mother and baby home. She didn't want me adopted. She wanted me fostered. The social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption is yours forever. The foster parents held me uh, for uh, 12 years. The social worker named me after himself illegally. Um, the, the foster parents gave up on the experiment at 12 years of age, put me into children's homes, said they'd never speak to me again. I was held then in five different children's homes until I was 18. I was thrown out then with no reference to anything that had happened to me in the previous 18 years. And I was given my birth certificate. And my birth certificate had my name on it, Lemsisse. And um, that's when I knew something must be wrong. Why was I called Norman for the first 18 years of my life? And I was given letters from my mother pleading for me back. My social worker said to me, somebody did love you. And he gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back in 1960s. I then, only a few years later, came to Manchester and you saw me on stage in Manchester. But as I, as I um, left care, I had no proof or evidence that anything that I've just told you had happened to me. So the fact is, is that this, is, this could be just a made-up story, right? It's actually a lot more bigger than what I've just explained to you. I, I fought for 30 years to get my files, and in no, longer than 30 years, in 2015, I received 18 years' worth of files that showed you everything that I've just told you now is true. My, 
I, I used any publicity that I got as a poet to take documentary makers, uh, uh, newspaper articles back to my story. And even then it was just, even then it was like a, oh, that's Lem's origin story, you know, he's searching for his ancestors. He's, no, I had my family stolen from me and I was left with nothing. So finally, I got my files in 2015 from Donna Hall, from the, the woman who runs Wigan, uh, Wigan uh, Social Services. She's a friend now, kind of. And I then took the government to court. That was the first thing I wanted, legal redress. I wanted somebody to, somebody to say, this happened, we are responsible. And I got that. So that took me three years. And then my job was to write, now I'm going to write the story. Why, why was that important to you to, to you know, I, I understand that, that need to un- understand and, and make sense of your own story. Why was it important to, to tell it in the form of a memoir? I wanted, I wanted redress on all fronts. Emotionally, obviously, I needed therapy. <laughs> um, financially. You know, every single birthday of my life, I've had no family. Like, how big is that? Or Christmas. Or Christmas. From the age of 18 years of age, any time I've won an award, no family. In other words, as however, however, whatever I've done, as I've reached, a, a, I, I, have, I have been made aware of what I have not got. I'm not making families out to be a great thing here, by the way. Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. And that's all I wanted. So I wanted redress, but I'm an artist and I've always been a writer. I've always been a poet. I didn't want to write about my story. It's not about my autobiography. I'm a poet by trade and I have been all my life. I travel the world as a writer, etc., etc., and still do. So I wanted artistic redress. And when I received the files, I thought, these are supposed to, these files can undermine me. It's like visit, revisiting trauma. But I get therapy for that, so I'm all good. So, so how can these become part of the, the memoir, the flags in the mountainside? Because it's all about words, man. The things that are written us, about us in the files, you know, it's all about language. Um, so I wanted to lean into that. And I realised how unique and rare it is that somebody should have 18 years of records written about them by the government from the moment they were born. How did you get into um, write, becoming a poet then? I, I knew I was going to be a poet when I was... I thought my name was Norman Mark Greenwood when I was um, 13, 13 years of age. Who, who did you see that made you think, oh, I can get from here to here? Yeah, um, well, I, I think it's connected to my foster father being an English teacher and reading lots of books as a child, reading the Reader's Digest. I, I was over the moon when My Name Is Why came out and I got a commission to write to write an article for the Reader's Digest because I used to read them as a kid. Um, so I went to, when I went into care at 12, the best way I could translate the experience was by writing a poem about it and I, I, I still have that familial relationship 
with the act of writing. I then went on to middle school, middle school to comprehensive, uh, and the teachers there were very encouraging. My English teacher, bald-headed, beer-drinking, you know, not at school, obviously, rugby, it was the 70s, not the 80s, rugby, rugby playing, you know, um, straight after casting for Kez, you know, he, um, he encouraged me, you know, uh, Mr Unsworth, his name is, and uh, when I became Chancellor at the University of Manchester, I invited him to come down. He said, no, Lem, I'm in Spain. <laughs> and when you share a story like yours, you, you will then have a lot of people want to share their stories with you. That's like, I think that must be in a very emotionally intense thing to receive those emails or have people coming up to you after, you know, poetry gigs and, and, and share those stories. How, how do you deal with that? Um, well, I, I, uh, I can't uh, solve anybody else's problems, but I can um, make people proud of the fact that they don't have to hide their story anymore. You know, the idea of being a child in care is that you should be an adult in shame, that somehow it's your fault that you have to carry that for the rest of your life. And I think what I've given maybe is permission to speak. You know, there are parents who've been in care who can't tell their own children. You know, and, and they, they, they spend their entire life blocking off their own childhood because they, they're, they're ashamed of sharing it with their own children when it's not their fault. Well, Lem, it's, it's an incredible memoir. My name is Why. It's, uh, it's out in paperback. Everybody's now. got Thank to you. buy it. Everybody does. It's, it's, it's an astonishing story. Thank you so much for uh, sharing it with us. And once you're done judging, uh, judging the Booker Prize, I guess that will coincide with the end of lockdown. What, what are you looking forward to doing? Is it getting out of the house? Is it getting out of London? Actually, uh, it, I, I am actually am going to Manchester for the University of Manchester quite soon. Um, I can't tell you what that's about either, and I, because I don't know myself. I think I've got an idea, but I don't know myself. It's all, it's all under wraps. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out. Maybe I've good, I need a holiday. We all need a holiday, right? Costa del Salford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lemsey say it's a pleasure to speak to you. Th- thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. We are, and we will avail ourselves of the opportunity to remind you to subscribe to our newsletter. Go to cheerfulpodcast.com, sign up, and you'll get uh, an expanded bumper uh, edition of everything we talk about in the podcast in newsletter form in your inbox every week. Yep, and if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on this week's episode uh, or ideas for future episodes, people can email by going on our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. I'd like to thank our guests, James Graham, David Woolner, and Kate Brown. 
and thanks to the incredible Lem Sissi. And I'll say that that was just a fraction of the conversation that we had with Lem. He was so brilliant. We're going to try and figure out a way of doing some kind of bonus episode where you'll get to hear the whole chat because uh, it was uh, it was a great conversation. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Big salute to Emma uh, with research from Joel Pierce and backup from Joe Kenyon and Zoe Gelber. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs>